There's a lot that goes into attempting to purchase a professional sports franchise, working with an ownership group, navigating local governments and bureaucracies, and working with sports leagues to get a franchise. My guest on this episode has done all that, as well as worked at the highest levels of sports broadcasting. Part two of this conversation, next on Sports in the Making. Thank you once again for listening to the Sports in the Making podcast, where we find out about what the people behind the scenes of sports and sports broadcasting do and how it all comes together. This is part two of my conversation with Ben Boma. Ben and I have worked on many of the same events together, and it was great learning about his experiences. As we discussed in part one, he's worked alongside some of the greatest announcers and reporters in sports. If you missed episode 12, I invite you to take a listen to that episode. Here's a clip from part one. It is 1,000% trust. The trust that, that I've built with some of the guys that I work in the booth and you know some of the best names in the business with Doc Emmerich and Kenny Albert, Steve Levy, Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough, on and on and on. There has to be 1,000% trust because they're looking at you to be perfect. I'm looking at them to be perfect because anybody at home, even the average fan, can pick out a big mistake. And our goal is to go through a whole broadcast not only getting zero mistakes, but our goal is to make you say wow to something. In this episode, we'll delve into what he does as a sports management consultant, helping ownership groups work to purchase sports franchises. We'll talk about how he's been able to build relationships with a number of different people in sports. And we'll talk about women in sports broadcasting, including his role in working side by side with some of the best announcers in the industry, such as Andrea Kramer and Hannah Storm. Here's part two of my conversation with my friend and colleague, Ben Boma. You were brought on with the Pirates to help with their stadium construction and other things of that nature, right? One of the reasons I fell into this business was we were, we were on a, when I played hockey at Penn State, we were on a road trip back from Canada. And our team videographer happened to be a, a professor in the communications department. And we had a great relationship. He loved me, kind of took me under his wing, and he said, Hey, what are you doing this summer? And I said, well, you know, I was going to stay here, take some classes, work out, coach some hockey schools. And he goes to me, and I think I'm 19 at the time. And he says, uh, you know, what about an internship? And I said, well, I'm not pre-med. What do you mean? And I'm, obviously I'm 19. <laughs> I'm naive at the time. Right. I'm like, like when you hear internship, you're thinking, you know, a doctor yeah. and pre-med and you have to do your internship to become, you know, full-fledged doctor. I said, like, Dean, what do you mean? Like, I'm not pre-made. He goes, no, 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 no. He goes, he goes, I know what you're interested in. You thought about, you know, some summer work experience. So, you know, it'll help you with your major and beyond. He's like, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, I have some, he goes, I know your acumen. He goes, I know some people with the Pittsburgh Pirates um, and they offer summer internships. And my eyes lit up because my parents are originally from Pittsburgh. I grew up watching the Pirates. Willie Stargell was my favorite player. And so he said, let me make a call. And I went down and got the internship. And so I spent two summers between uh, my junior and senior year. And after I graduated, interning in the PR department of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And so that was my first foray of kind of getting wet into this industry. And obviously, once you look around, you start to learn and learn and learn. But I ended up going back to the Pirates in uh, 1996. I left the Washington Capitals to take that job. And literally three weeks after I got hired, is when Kevin McClatchy bought the Pittsburgh Pirates, right? Mm -hmm. Now, here I'm thinking, geez, I just picked up from an NHL job. 
moved back to Pittsburgh. Oh my God, this guy's going to come in. He has all these people that he's going to hire and I'm going to be out of a job. Well, fortunately, you know, at the time, Kevin's 33 years old, pulled off a miracle just to get the franchise. My boss had already gone down to spring training because it's mid-February already. So I spent the next three weeks as Kevin's liaison. We did every breakfast meeting, every radio show, every lunch, and every banquet to introduce Kevin to the community. What a great opportunity. Well, at the time, I didn't really look at it more as an opportunity. You know, in retrospect, yes, because everything was happening a million miles an hour. Here's a young guy spending money to keep this team in Pittsburgh and promising to build a ballpark. And so I kind of bonded with Kevin and it, it was a good thing because obviously it means I was keeping my job. But right. then literally that summer and that fall is when we started the process of trying to get PNC Park built. And it really taught me the intricacies of how does a franchise deal with a city? How do we find the financing for a ballpark? How do you market it? How do you sell it so the public will buy into it? You know, all these things that that people really don't know and how hard, how literally hard it is to get these things done. So it was like another internship for me, even though I was working full time. So it really, really taught me some of the intricacies. Then when I left there, getting the ballpark done was just phenomenal and and the things I learned and it's you know still to this day one of the best ballparks out there but I never really looked at it as a springboard until later to some other things so for years having played hockey at Penn State we had tried to get a rink built there because in 1993 when Penn State went into the Big Ten they were designing this beautiful on-campus arena you know for the basketball team old rec hall which had been there for 70 some odd years was starting to get old Penn State's moving in the Big Ten, and they're designing this beautiful arena. Well, some bean counter in the design of the arena crossed off the ability to put pipes and an ice compressor into the facility, which you're like, why wouldn't you do that? You know, whether it's ice capades coming to town right. or a Penguins Flyers preseason game, like it literally at that in 1993, it cost like $300,000 to do it. It's literally nothing to make sure the pipes are in the cement floor forever. Well, some bean counter like didn't know the importance of it and didn't put them in so for years penn state hockey had no great place to play so alums like myself and guys who played there for a long time and and loved the hockey program had tried for years to get a a donation or some money going to get a new arena built on campus and we're all about 20 years later ready to give up and out of the blue we're introduced to terry pagula and and people who don't know terry pagula is he's now the current owner of the buffalo sabers and the buffalo bills but Terry's a Penn State grad, and he had always maintained an affinity for the school, had been one of the pioneers in fracking and made his fortune in the oil and gas industry. And we met him and you know, kind of told him our plate and got him very interested. And he, his original donation was like, hey, how, how would $10 million help? And that is <laughs> nothing, nothing to sniff at, right? Like $10 million is not pocket change, and it's a donation. And the school, even at that time, was still very reticent. We're like, they're like, 10 million's okay, but it's not going to get the job done. And Terry goes, well, what about 20? Uh, that's good, but that's still not going to get it done. And we're literally looking at each other like, $20 million isn't good enough. Yeah. And, and we had done some work behind the scenes. And at that point, you know, an arena would cost, if you wanted to do it right, somewhere between 65 and $75 million to do it right. So here is, you have a guy literally willing to write a $20 million check. You have the school saying no. And I'm like, I'm just mind boggled by this. Okay. Now at this stage, Terry finds out he's going to finish a deal with Royal Dutch Shell for about $4.6 billion in cash. Okay. Not, not M, but with a B. And so now at this point, Terry's pretty confident the deal's going to 
be finished soon. And he goes, well, how about 40 million? I'm like, well, school's not turning down 40 million. So I go back to the school and talk to the athletic director about a plan to spend that $40 million to retrofit that arena that had been built in 1993, get the pipes. It's, it's actually built for hockey as, as far as the seating configuration, but you know, get the pipes in, get the locker rooms in, da, 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 like the $40 million would have covered it. And he says, he goes, well, let me get back to you. And he says, the school still doesn't want to do it. And I go, wow. wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that the school is going to turn on a $40 million donation and, and he's like, yeah, he goes, they do, they do not want to shut the building down for six to eight months as long as it would take because they're afraid they'd lose all this revenue. And I was like, I literally felt at this point, like, I, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And I said to Tim Curley, the athletic director, who I loved, and I said, uh, I said, Tim, with my connections in the media, do you really want me to go out and call like USA Today and ESPN and say, hey, Penn State just turned down $40 million <laughs> because of something stupid and he's like well that's kind of where we are right now I'm like and now i'm just beyond frustrated so a couple weeks later we're at boston university checking out the hockey arena there the agana center which is gorgeous it's one of the better hockey facilities in the country and we're meeting with mike ruzioni and he's giving us a tour and we finish the tour and we happen to walk out uh, on the commonwealth ave and the phone rings and it's terry pagula and he goes guys the deal's done what do you need <laughs> so basically the full cost of getting the new hockey arena built and the scholarships uh, endowed was $88 million. He's like done. So now at this point, so it was doubled. Yeah. So not, yeah, he's no, but at this point he's like, basically just tell me what you need. I'm yeah. not going to throw a number out. Just tell me what you need. Right. So now, now we're able to go back to the school and go, look, you got no choice now, guys. Like he's writing the full check. It's done. So Terry just an amazing, I mean, to, to think of that donation, the number went up to 102 million because when they added women's hockey, we had to, we had to build more locker rooms and oh, scholarships right. and so forth. So the total, the total bill was $102 million. And that's just an unbelievable gift on any level for that guy to make. So we make the announcement at Penn State and it's going to be amazing and everybody's excited. So we're out that night with Terry, about four or five of us. And I jokingly say to Terry, now, Terry, I can do the math. <laughs> you can afford an NHL team. Have you thought about it? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I've, you know, I've, I've thought about it in the past. And I said to him, well, what's more important to you, the logo on a chest or getting into the club of ownership? And he goes, he goes, well, and I'm thinking at the time, like, he's going to say, you know, I love the Rangers or I love Chicago or bought, like one of the big market teams. He goes, well, I'm actually the world's biggest Buffalo Sabres fan. And I'm like looking huh. at him like, what? Like, what are the odds a guy worth $4.6 billion you know, wants the Buffalo Sabres? And I said, <laughs> I said, that doesn't make sense. Like, tell me the story. So Terry actually had grown up around the Scranton area. And when the Flyers and the Sabres played in the 1975 uh, Stanley Cup Finals, Terry fell in love. He was able to watch it because, you know, Scranton's proximity to Philadelphia. But he said, I fell in love with the French Connection, the famous uh, top line of the Buffalo Sabres, which was... Rick Martin, Gilbert Perrault, and Rene Robert. And so he always had an affinity. Then, later on, Terry moves his company to Western New York, becomes a season ticket holder, loves the team, yada, yada. So he's telling his story, and I'm like, wow, this is real. Like, holy cow. Um, so his story has legitimacy, and it kind of reminded me of Robert Kraft. You know, people know Robert Kraft was a New England Patriots season ticket holder, and finally worked and made enough money to buy his team, and, and look what he's done with it. So I'm and I said, Terry, that's an amazing story. I said, but, you know, as far as I know, they're not for sale. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, you know, I called them last year and they weren't interested. 
and he's got a cigar in one hand and a glass of wine into the other. And he literally says, the hell with it. And he calls him again the next morning. He calls the Buffalo Sabres the day after we finished the Penn State deal. All right. So he's just made a hundred and two million donation. Yeah, he's made this donation to Penn State. And now we've got his gears turning. And now he calls him. And now the Buffalo Sabres ownership now knows like he's what he's worth and says, Hey, let's talk. And so we we made an application to the league a few weeks later. And because it's not the way it used to, you know, they want to vet their potential owners, they match the two, and then you do the due diligence. So the league said, okay, you guys are free to talk. We got on the ground right before Christmas, and he had the team by Valentine's Day. So again, the whirlwind, the Penn State deal, the Buffalo Sabre deal, added on to kind of the internship I had learning about, you know, PNC Park and the Pirates ownership and all that. Like, I had now gone through this amazing wealth of almost like classes to learn how deals get done. Each deal is unique. Each circumstance is unique. Each buyer, each owner, each league, each opposing owner they're all unique so you really have to know how what the match is what the money is the financing um the spreadsheets on the team and how it functions you know i'm, I'm literally learning on this stuff on the fly having never thought about it having never prepared for it and i'm, I'm in the deep end of the pool uh, and just to be able to learn all that on top of everything else i was doing not something i planned but it's an incredible wealth of information and knowledge that i got to to experience and be privy to what is it that goes into the deal? You you mentioned kind of just the, you know, the bullet points of it. But when we hear about deals happening in the media, there are some really good reporters that can get you that information. And sure. But how much of that is clouded by by just maybe not understanding what goes into it? Is it is it accurate information all the time? How do they get that information? No, no, no. So so if 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 ownerships in the league are doing things right, the media knows nothing. They 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 literally they think they're the smartest peoples in the world. And they literally know nothing. I mean, one of the things, and, and I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about the, the Phoenix and the Seattle deals, is that the people who came to me later about wanting to work on a deal, I said, look, I'm true to my word, and it's a conflict of interest for me if I'm involved, because I can make one phone call to SportsCenter, I can make one phone call to NBC Sports, I can make one phone call to Fox, and this can be you know, headline news. I said, the only way deals get done is if you stay out of the media. So many of these deals are... The, the deals that don't get done are the deals between an ownership, which is really testing the waters and the valuation of their franchise with mm-hmm. somebody who's desperate to own, but probably is not either wealthy enough or good enough or going to be accepted by the league to own. So you have a little bit of a stocking horse going on. You know, I've known, I know the Mets have done it with some people like, what is the actual valuation of our team? And sometimes you have to throw it out there and say, we might be interested in selling to find out. Well, what's the value of it? Like, it's like if you have an old car and you want to get rid of it, you may have a price in your mind, but once you put it out there for sale, you may see the value maybe higher or lower. So it's the same thing almost with franchises. So what you read in the media, 95% of it is probably not true and really comes down to your leak stuff to the media at the end when a deal's about to get completed. Mm. Or you use the media to your advantage to say, here's where we are in the deal. And it may be nowhere close to the actual truth, but at least it it satiates the public on, is this group working on it? Or is this close to being done? So there's the media is definitely part of it, but they certainly don't guide sales in any way, shape or form. The negotiations between clubs, how dynamic is that? How often do you meet? What are the things that are discussed, say, at the initial part? And then when there's more interest and then maybe as you get closer to a sale. Right. It's well, again, you have to have 
you have to have two parties that might work together. Like I said, so it's, a lot of it's timing. One of the reasons that we were able to get Terry's sale done and purchase of the Sabres one is you had a willing seller mm. and you had a guy who could write a check in that window. Uh, where things have really changed in the ownership world is you're seeing the leagues kind of broker sales now more than they ever have. I think some of it is out of you know protection to make sure the deal is done right and know that that the new ownership is informed of what they're really getting into because again leagues have morphed more into these 24/7 media empires with games being played more than games being played yeah. like you know you know the the commissioner of all the sports would probably admit to you that they've just they've morphed into these amazing conglomerates that probably didn't exist 5 10 years ago so you'll see sales more brokered by the league rather than hey you own this team i you know i have the money do you want to do it and then the league just, you know, they they say, okay, you're good. So I think, the, the, you know, a commissioner's job in the league, they want the valuation of their teams to go up. So they want to get good buyers. They want to get wealthy people who know that they can put money into the teams to make them operate. You know, a lot of that has really evolved over the last decade more so than maybe the previous 50 years. You mentioned the Coyotes earlier. You were a part of a group attempting to purchase them, right? Correct. Yep. You know, after we finished the Sabres deal, I had some people reach out to me the next fall because they knew my proximity to the Penn State thing and Terry and everything that had gone on. And obviously with my my connections within the NHL and the people I knew, some guys reached out to me and they said, look, you know, I, I got some people, you know, they've got some money, they're interested. They said, what can you find out? And I said, well, let me reach out to the league and kind of see who's available. Now, at the time, they were they were more interested in trying to buy the Chicago Blackhawks than they were anything else. And I said, guys, Blackhawks <laughs> no are chance. available. Like, just so you know. I, I, I mean, yeah, you could want them, but you know they're probably not for sale. Yeah. I mean, we all know that everything's for sale, but I'm I'm doubting the Words family is gonna gonna sell the team. But with my connections and my knowledge, I kind of knew that the at the time the Coyotes had, were owned by the league. The league had bought them out of their bankruptcy, and so they were owned by the other 29 owners at the time. And sooner or later, those owners were they wanted to find a real buyer and, and get it off their books, which they should. You should have somebody out there who owns it, runs it, you know, as a separate entity. So I said, let me reach out to the league. And they said, look, you know, the Coyotes are probably going to be, you know, on the market if you want to wait till the spring. And I said, okay. So we waited it out. And in that time, a new group came to me and not the group that said they wanted to buy the Blackhawks. But, uh, you know, I got connected with a gentleman named Ray Bartizek who tried to buy the Mets and is a minority owner of the Yankees. You know, I kind of told him what was going on. And I said, but but here's what we need to do. I said, let's go into Gary Bettman and, and basically say, look, we want to buy the Coyotes, but move them. You know, I had lived in Arizona. I kind of knew their finances. And unless they get a new arena, which they still haven't done out there, if they get a new arena in a better location, they'll be they'll be much more viable. But I said, let's go into Gary and say, look, our interest is to buy them and and move them to a better city. And he said to us, you know, well, where are you thinking? I said, Seattle. Without even him finishing the question, I said, we want to move them to Seattle. Because there is no better sports market left in North America that didn't have a, a, a winter franchise because the basketball team had left in 06 for Oklahoma City. And there is a lot of hockey history in Seattle. Most people don't know yeah. that you know, the Seattle Metropolitans were actually the first American team to win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> and when people you tell people that, they're like, really? Like, yeah, 1917. So what we were able to do was give the NHL an option that in Gary's best interest, he wanted to, you know, nobody ever wants to move a franchise because you're kind of giving up on a market, which at that time it had a team for a long time and had a good hockey market, but they just didn't have a great place to play. So we were, you know, incredibly transparent and brutally honest with them and say, look, 
if you want to pursue other ownership groups that want to keep them there, fine. But it all comes down to the vote for the Glendale City Council, who was giving the team $15 million in subsidies every year. And so we said, well, look, you know, we, we, we'll be plan B. That, look, this vote goes the other way. We'll be on the ice in, in Seattle in 100 days. So, again, it was a unique experience because we were giving the league an option to a market that we knew they wanted with kind of what you were, I, I don't want to call you know Phoenix kind of a disadvantaged team, but they're just in a disadvantaged situation. And so we spent a bulk of the spring of 2013 being the plan B. You know, we had a deal done with the league and I spent a great deal of time in Seattle making sure that if this vote went the other way, that we were able to change the configuration of Key Arena and make it ready to go in 100 days. You know, I had two uh, Zambonis on hold in New Hampshire. We had a spare scoreboard that uh, was going to come up from Houston. Like this was going to be real like Wild West stuff had the vote gone the other way. And we lost three to four. You know, we, it literally came down to one vote on July 2nd that if we had, you know, had, had gone uh, in our direction, the moving vans were gone. It would look like the, you know, when the Baltimore Colts left for Indianapolis, like we we're going to have to make plans. So, again, it was another unique kind of learning experience for me because th- this was a whole different purchase. It was a purchase and a move. And not only that, if you, if you, if you got it done, you better be on the ice in 100 days. <laughs> so... I know had you guys left Arizona, there would have been some very unhappy fans. I went to Arizona State. My first internship in sports was with the Phoenix Roadrunners, AAA of the LA Kings. Oh, nice. You know it well, right? Yeah, and you know just the fans out there. And you know, I did shoot the inaugural season for the Coyotes as a camera operator. I know how passionate those fans are. You know, having gotten to know some of the season ticket holders, so it was probably a blessing in disguise for them that 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 vote did. Yeah, I mean, go. I feel for the fans out there because yeah. the rink is just in the wrong place. You know, I know why they built it out there. Yeah. Back when, you know, that group, you know, and again, they built they built the football stadium right across the street. They were looking at that area of Phoenix as being a viable growth location mm-hmm. as more and more people moved out there. But then the housing bubble hit. Yeah. And now Glendale just became kind of I don't want to say a ghost town, but it was just it's not they had hoped 800,000 people were going to be living within a mile of that arena when they broke ground. Yeah. And it just, it stopped. I mean, the world and the economy just said, no, it's not going to happen. And so we all know that if, if the arena was probably on the East side of the Phoenix area, they'd be fine. They, they'd be probably one of the better franchises in the league because now you're near the fans and the money mm-hmm. and, and you're not adding a half hour to 40 minute commute out to see the coyotes both before and after the game. So uh, again, it was kind of their their finances and and the fact that the team uh, the the team was owned by the league for four years, and I'm like, well, let's go to the league and give them an option. Again, it was a great learning experience, but I also knew that by dangling Seattle in front of Gary Bettman, that if we didn't luck out and get the Coyotes, that we would kind of be the first into Seattle for expansion. So there was a process involved, like, sure, would I have liked to have gotten the Coyotes and gotten on the ice right away? Yes. But also knowing that, look, Seattle is, you know, most people don't know that the DMA of, of Seattle and Portland together is the fifth largest DMA in the country. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lot of people out there, and you're only two hours from Vancouver. You're in a great, great area to have a hockey franchise. So, again, it was kind of all my forward thinking of geez okay we don't get the coyotes but at least we're on the ground there so coyotes deals dad did you get discouraged obviously not enough to not continue on with trying to get another franchise this time in seattle a a, a crazy story 
we lose the vote on July 2nd. Again, it's one of those things. I was more prepared for the loss. Like I knew a lot of things had to go our way. We were fully prepared. But as the vote got closer, I mean, it's almost like in any election, you're kind of seeing where the winds are blowing. And it sounded like they had the votes. And so I was prepared. Look, if it went the other way, I would have done cartwheels. But I was mentally prepared for it not to work. And I was kind of thinking, okay, what are the next steps if we don't get it? And the irony was we were literally negotiating with Gary Bettman and Bill Daly as they were in the air to Arizona for that vote. Because, again, they didn't know. We didn't know. We're just like, we're making sure we got everything covered. So, But when it went the other way, kind of took a week and I was like, Ugh, I was exhausted. But, you know, I was kind of prepared for the fate. Well, two weeks later, the baseball all-star game is in New York. It's at City Field. And as we, we mentioned, I help produce the Home Run Derby every year. So the Thursday before I'm ready to leave for New York on that Friday and prepare for the, the weekend and the Derby on Monday, I called Gary Bettman up and I said, hey, are you going to be in town on Monday? And he said, sure, what's up? He says, ah, I just want to you know, stop in. And he's like, yeah, come by Monday afternoon. So Monday afternoon, and you know this from being around the event, the, the Monday of the Home Run Derby, we rehearse everything in the morning. So we will go out to the field and walk through the pregame and the lineups and the ceremony and the postgame and just make sure, you know, everything's set to go before everybody starts coming on the ballpark for batting practice and that or not. So I go out to City Field that morning. When we're done, as soon as we're done, I zip back into the city. And if I think that day it was like 102 degrees in, in New York City, I get back to the hotel, I throw on a suit and tie. And I walk about five blocks to the NHL office, I go up to Gary Bettman's office, and he's dressed in jeans and an untucked <laughs> Oxford shirt and Doc Siders. And I'm like, Gary, what the heck? He's, and he looks at me, he's like, what the heck are you doing? And so, you know, we go into his office and we spent almost two hours there, just he and I and Bill Daly talking about the Seattle market. You know, he said, look, I appreciate everything you guys did. You did everything you possibly could. You can't control the vote. But just so you know... We're still very interested in the Seattle market. He basically gave me three checklists. He said, look, if you can get the money, which you know you can, if you can get an arena deal done and get a lease done out there, I will get you a team. And so I left the office that day, you know, kind of reinvigorated, knowing there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, no kidding. But, you know, because neither of those were, none of those things he just asked me to do were easy. <laughs> so... You know, I spent most of that fall and the next spring out in Seattle a lot trying to get all those things done. And it is exhausting because you're you're working with different groups and who to trust on the politics and the arena and construction and design and financing and and the local politics. And it's a whirlwind because, you know, everybody wants you to get it done. But at the end of the day, there's really only a small group of people who can get things done. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things where, again, it's not like you're building a new arena, a new ballpark for an established franchise like the Pirates. You're literally, literally trying to do everything between <laughs> finding the financing for a team, getting a term sheet done with a league, getting in agreements with local politicians, uh, finding the money for architects, finding the money for initial construction and geotech and and it's like you're trying to do everything at once. You li you literally can't make everybody happy. Like it's one of those things everybody wants to be involved with because it's new and it's sports and exciting and they know it'll be good for the city. But it adds layers and layers and layers of people who want to get involved who just shouldn't be. And then so things get spread out and, you know, people make promises to other people that you don't know about. And it's it's a really 
I don't wish it on anybody. Uh, here's what I would say to people. Go buy a team that exists and already has a stadium. <laughs> that would be my advice to anybody who wants to get in this. Don't try to do both from scratch because it's virtually impossible. Um, we went out there and we thought we had a deal done on an arena with the gentleman who was who originally tried to move the Sacramento Kings to Seattle. His name was Chris Hansen. And then, you know, he basically had an MOU with the city of Seattle. You know, an MOU is memorandum of understanding, but that's basically a monopoly that, you know, he had the only deal with the cities through 2017 to build an arena. So we originally worked with him. That didn't seem to be going anywhere. So it was just, it was one step after another. And Gary wanted the league to have both Las Vegas and Seattle coming at the same time. So there was pressure on our end to get an arena deal done and the money for the team yeah. in a really, really fast window. So again, it was like the Pirates deal was like getting a bachelor's degree. The Sabres deal was like getting a master's degree. And now I feel like I have a doctorate in how to and how to not get team and arena deals done. So I, I, if anybody needs questions asked, I can answer a million questions on how yeah. to do it because I've succeeded and failed. And I think, you know, you learn a lot more just like when you lose a game, you learn a lot more from failure than you ever do from the success. So the, the, my wealth of knowledge and experience about not getting and completing the deal in Seattle is literally, I could probably teach a course on it. And that's one thing that I, you're reading from your bio is you ultimately didn't get the franchise because of the expansion fees increase, I would guess. Yeah, that was part of it. Yeah. Again, it, it's, it's, and I don't, I don't blame Gary or the league for that because you know, the, the their job is to get as much money as they could. Oh, it's for a business, expansion right? Yeah, it, yeah. It's like, you know, I won't fault them, but the number kept going up. You know, when you're in the middle of trying to raise money, as well as getting an arena done, and the number goes from three to three fifty to four to five. Now it's six fifty. You know, you laugh because ten years ago nobody wanted the Atlanta Thrashers. You could probably buy some of the teams for fifty million bucks, and now the expansion fee is six hundred and fifty million. That was within a two-year span of me starting on this. Wow. You know, our, our deal for the Coyotes was somewhere in the two hundred million dollar range, and within two years, expansion is now six fifty. So we live in this world where, look, everything's going up, the valuations of the team, the broadcast rights. And so it almost changes on a month by month by month basis. And so trying to keep up with all of that and having some people renege on some investment dollars and some things on the ground, it's it was a lot to juggle at once. Man, if we'd pulled it off, I, I would be retired by now. <laughs> um, but again, I can't thank the cosmos enough for the amount of knowledge that it's brought me on how all of this craziness works. So when I have uh, $650 million laying around, I'll make sure to call you because I've always wanted to own a baseball franchise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would, you know, it's funny because you hear Montreal being bandied about and, you know, I'm sure MLB would like to add two more franchises. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, but, you know, if you went into Rob Manfred's office, where would that number start? You know, like, He's seen what other leagues have done. You know, the Miami Marlins were sold for a ridiculous amount when they only have 6,000 season ticket holders. Like, like I tell people all the time, I said, you can, the actual spreadsheets that you would get for your business operations for a franchise, you throw that out the window when you're comparing it to the valuation. It used mm -hmm. to be in professional sports, like they had to match. Like whatever you ran your business of the operation of that franchise at, it had to match your valuation. Now, sports franchises are works of art. 
you know, of the 120 plus in the U.S. of the four major sports, maybe one, maybe two a year come for sale. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Like I said, now that you have it, it's almost like an auction process. The league will get involved in the sale. They'll measure the bids out there who might be interested. And then all of a sudden they're bidding against each other. They just did it with the Buffalo Bills when Terry Pagula, you know, bought the Bills. There were three groups who were bidding from anywhere. They started at 800 million and ended up being sold for about $1.4 billion. So you can't tell me that that valuation matches the spreadsheet for your business. It doesn't. It's just a matter of availability, finding somebody who could afford it, and they will be works of art now until there aren't enough people with wealth that can afford them. Like Jerry Jones and, and Robert Kraft have to be laughing. Their franchises are worth so much more than they ever bought them for. And that's a credit to them and, and how hard they worked on the Cowboys and the Patriots. But they're, you know, I think the Patriots were valued at like 3.5 billion and the Cowboys are probably at 4 billion. Like who, who has the money now? You're going to run out of billionaires and wealthy people who can buy those franchises. You know, again, we, we live in a different world now than even 10 years ago. Um, so it's, I, I have no idea where it's going to, like I said, if you had a wealthy friend and said, Hey, can you help them buy a team? I go, I would go, I don't even know where to start, bud. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't know where our baseline is because the baseline will shift by the time we have our first conversation between us and our first conversation with the league. It'll move. So, well, you mentioned XFL earlier that you're working on the TV side of that. Yep. After a few games, as of the recording of this podcast, how is the, the acceptance, I guess. Right. We, we had a, we had a, like a, a post dinner conversation last night. And like I said, if anybody who's listened to this, we're in Houston right now to do the Houston Seattle game uh, in week four of the XFL. And we had a long post dinner discussion last night. Okay. We're a month into this. What do we think about it? What are the surprises and where do you think it's headed? And it was Steve Levy and myself and a couple of guys on the crew. And my first reaction to all of this was, I think if it goes well, you're going to see a significant investment by the NFL into it. Hmm. Now, I don't, I, this isn't based on any specific knowledge. Sure. This is me just saying, look, if, if you're looking at this at 30,000 feet, you know, those of you who remember the World League, the World League was an amazing developmental league by, for the NFL, uh, not just for players, but for coaches and officials and broadcasters and production people. And it was great for football fans overseas. And it provided, you know, this proving ground for players who had really no option uh, at the time. They could play in the spring and then and then hopefully get invited to camps, you know, down the road. You know, again, like I, this is not based on any specific knowledge, but I, I watch what the NBA has done with their developmental leagues and the success of the summer league. And it's just more content, but it's also a proving ground for guys who want to get a shot, who are can't play in college anymore. And there's really no minor league. I see this kind of same idea with the NFL. Like the, the data and the unique rules that they have are good for the game. The players play hard. The football is pretty good. It's in NFL cities. If, if you're the NFL, why wouldn't you invest in 50% of it and make it your spring developmental league? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it, to me, it, it makes sense because I've been pleasantly surprised with the product. It's not like the last round of the XFL, which is more, more like, and I'm not ripping on wrestling. It was more, showy more yeah it was more it felt more like you were going to a wrestling match not a football game now you feel like you're going to a football game it's football it's focused on football the fundamentals the access uh the training the proving grounds the rules it's focused on 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 football and i think you know we brought up a good point last night when you when you see what the nfl guys are saying about it whether it's players or coaches they're not ripping it nobody's saying oh this is a joke they're actually like hey this isn't bad 
so that's a credit to the guys. You know, the AAF tried to get everything done too fast. I think when they came on board, it's like we had to start playing right away because if you remember, I think they and the XFL both announced their intentions at about the same time. So there was and a so, competition to be right, first. Right. And so the AAF was kind of like, oh, let's hurry up. And, and I think that was a detriment to them rather than taking the time. What I've noticed the, the, the XFL guys in speaking with them is the amount of research and data and studying and percentages that they've put into some of the rule changes and the coaching and the players and the salaries. They really did it right for a startup. And I think they're seeing the fruits of that labor right now. Like it's, it's, it's decent to watch. I mean, you know what you're getting, like, you know, you don't go to a double a ballpark hoping to see, you know, the best players in the world. You're going to watch decent baseball and that's what yeah. they're providing right now. I think the access that, that we provide in the telecast is really fun. Even as a football, you know, somebody who's been around the NFL for in college football for almost 30 years, I've seen and noticed some things that I think are really neat. And yeah. that's, I think that's the sign of any good startup that, Okay, it's not here to knock the NFL off. It's not the USFL. We're not going to play at the same time. We're going to, okay, what fits? What makes sense? And so I appreciate that because I hate startups that blow a window. I think these guys are really taking an opportunity. Their enthusiasm is great. They're well-funded. And I think, you know, we were talking last night, like the NFL should get involved now because what happens two years from now, three years from now when, the, when it's, you know, it's really cooking along and it started to provide some players to the NFL. So everybody knows it's legit, but the WWE values their league now worth 300 million instead of maybe a hundred. Mm -hmm. So the NFL could write a $50 million check and partner with them now. If they wait, what could happen? So yeah. I'd like to think there's a lot of, you know, Oliver Luck is a great man. I love having conversations with him on the field. You can just tell the enthusiasm and the vision and how they like, there's just certain things there that are making sense. So again, it goes back to your original question. I would think the NFL would partner with the XFL and, and it becomes its legitimate spring developmental league. Yeah. Just hearing you talk over the last hour or so, it, it, I can really tell that you are a person who's has the natural ability to make connections and build relationships. How do you do that? Like, because that doesn't come easy for everybody, but how have you been able to do it? And I know luck or timing has a lot to do with that as well, right. but it's actually having those high level conversations and building that trust. How do you do that? Well, I think it's, um, you bring up a great point. And I think an example you can bring up, there are player coaches and managers, and there are, um, like X's and O's, like just firm fundamental people. Right. I think a lot of it has to do with personality. Like how do you read people? How do you understand them? And I think at the end of the day, you always hear like, he's a great players coach or he's a great players manager. And, and, and one of the people I learned from out of the gate was Jim Leland. Jim Leland to this day is a close friend. You know, maybe I see him once a year at the all-star break and we'll tell, still laugh, still tell the same stories. But watching him as, a, as when I was a young person, I mean, I was only 22 when I first went to the Pirates and then I was uh, given the PR guy at 24. I was able to kind of watch how he dealt with people, you know, stern on some guys, some guys needed a hug, you know, just the, the ability to read people, know what they're like, what they need, what, uh, what makes them motivated. I remember him taking the time out. Remember I'm the, I'm like the, the number two PR guy and I'm on my first road trip and he and Ray Miller, people remember the name Ray Miller. He was a legendary pitching coach. Uh, he had the Baltimore Orioles had the 420 game winners. And then he was Jim Leland's pitching coach in Pittsburgh. 
And they would see how hard I would take a loss, right? I'm, the, I'm like the PR guy. <laughs> and as a, you know, it, it takes a while when you're an athlete to get the competitive juices out of your system. You know, I would have the highs and lows of, <laughs> of winning and losing, which over time you tend to lose because you realize, you know, you have to be a professional and so on and so forth. And so we're on a road trip and they're like, hey, Ben, you know, come down to the bar after a game. And I'm sitting there with, again, I'm 24 years old and I'm sitting there with Ray Miller and Jim Leland. And they both are like, look, you get it. Like, you're going to be in this business for a long time. And they said, but what you have to realize is once those guys cross the white lines, there is nothing you can do about it. And I kind of looked at them funny. I'm like, you're the manager. You're the pitching coach. Like, you make lineup decisions. And, you, you, you know, you can tell the pitcher's hurting or you're making pitching calls. And I said, I said, I don't get it. He goes, he goes, it doesn't even matter what we do. He goes, remember, once those guys cross the white lines, we can prepare them as good as possible, but they might not perform. They might, you know, miss a bunt. They might overthrow a guy. Like once they get in between the white lines, there's nothing you can do about it. And it was a really unique perspective for me that I'll never forget because it, it taught me to look at things differently. That unless you're a player, there's only so much you can do. So the ability to read people and read maybe what, how they deal with you or how they act or are they professional or are they punctual or, or can they carry on a conversation or, or when you talk to them about a, a certain sport, are they, full of, are they full of it or can you tell that you're talking on the same wavelength? So that's, I've always kind of had that ability. My dad was like that, especially as a coach and a teacher where you, you read people right away. And then over conversations, you kind of say, well, like the, the, the phone call that I got off of right before you and I started the podcast, I was helping a friend of mine who's uh, on the air in New England. I was connecting her because she never had an agent before. She'd always done all of her contracts before. And so the time I spent with her in New England, I'm like, man, you need, you need help. Like you need representation. And I'm close with, you know, somebody I thought would be perfect for her. And I matched them up on a conversation right before this podcast. Boom, they hit it off and they're probably going to be her representation. So again, I think it's more, it's an ability that you take the time to listen to people. You notice what they do. You have to be very perceptive. And it's the same thing when I'm a spotter or stats in the booth, like they'll always ask me like, how did you see that? Or what did you see? Like, well, I, I never saw that. Well, like, wh what did you look at? And it's just that sometimes it's just an innate, an innate ability to either predict or look ahead or anticipate or just see how things fit together. I, I, I don't really practice it. I just, I kind of have an innate ability to see, well, you know, I just talked to that person, you know, this might be a good fit for you. But that's also from learning. Like my parents were like that. They were teachers, having good coaches growing up, you know, having, having Jim Leland and, and, and Ray Miller spend like a half an hour with me to say, buddy, calm down. You're going to be in this business for a long time. Here, here's something you got to learn. And you kind of pass that on. Like what I'm saying should be a learning experience for everybody in sports. You've been in sports. You, you have rooting interests. But when you realize that once they go out there, there's nothing you can do. It's a really unique ex learning experience in this business because then you can focus on different things. If you spend all your emotional energy worrying about whether or not we were going to beat the Montreal Expos, well, it takes away from the things that you need to be a professional. So um, those are the types of things I try to pass on and also use to connect people. Well, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, but I know time is getting a little bit short. If I may, I'd like to talk to you about the National Women's Hockey League. Sure. You were asked to serve on the board of that. I'm not sure where you are right now, but what's the status of that league? Like we talked earlier, one of the things when we, when we got 
the rink build at Penn State was we needed to add a women's team to match the scholarships that we were endowing for the men's team. So again, here we were creating a program out of scratch that needed to match a Division One program, right? Between the finances, the travel. I mean, you name it, you're almost creating a mini franchise. During the 2011 Stanley Cup final run, I actually became friends with Danny Ryland, who is the current commissioner of the NWHL. About two years later, she called me out of the blue and she's like, hey, any way you can help me out? I'm like, what? She's like, well, I'm thinking about starting this women's hockey league. I said, excuse me? <laughs> like, okay. Uh, I knew the one in Canada that exists, but they weren't paying their players. And she said, I want to I create a league where the women are getting paid. And I'm like, well, that's probably the definition of a professional league. But no, that's amazing. So I connected with her and she asked me to be on the uh, board at the beginning just to kind of help them get going, not only with my knowledge of getting a Division One program, which is the equivalent of, of the level they needed to get the women's league going as far as expenses and, and costs and ice time and equipment and, and stuff like that. The four teams she started out with were basically like starting four businesses, which were the equivalent of four Division One teams. And... But she knew with my connections with the NHL and Gary Bettman and with NBC, like I would be able to help her out with some of the publicity. Like, you know, it's, you know, hey, can you call a writer and get a story done or somebody at the New York Times? Just, to, you know, I, I, I was able to donate some of my mental energy to help that get started. It's I think they're in year six. I think time flies because it's, it's hard to believe they have expanded to Minnesota. I think a lot of the things you hear, there's a little bit of divide on what the elite players, the women's players think they should get versus what supply and demand allows. You know, one, one of the hardest things, you know, the, the women's hockey players, and, and they've come so far in such a short amount of time, both in talent and numbers, that their entire careers have been spent kind of being funded in a nonprofit basis whether you start out youth hockey and then you go to prep school and then you go to college on a scholarship and then you play for USA hockey, your hockey career is funded. All right. You're not writing a check ever, except like when your parents did the youth hockey thing, you're kind of always on a nonprofit or title nine situation. Well, once you want to become a professional that goes out the window and you are subject to the laws of supply and demand that everybody in business is. And so I've been a little disappointed in where the elite players have taken this because they kind of act like they're immune to it. Like, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't have to, you know, somebody should write us a big check, whether it's the NHL or a big donor. And you go, well, wait a second, that doesn't make you a professional revenue generating league. That's you saying you want somebody to fund your ability to keep playing hockey. I mean, I don't know what your favorite hobby is, but I would sure as heck like somebody to come and write a check so I can play the PGA tour even though I'm not good enough and nobody's going to watch me play, but I'd love for somebody to write a $10 million check so I can keep playing golf. So I've been disappointed with the avenue the elite players have taken because there's a window here for everybody that, to succeed and be happy. The NWHL is having a great season. They just had their all-star game. They're generating revenue. They're doing fine. But the elite players think that's not the route to go. I think they're expecting the NHL to come in and write a $20 million yearly check for them to exist. And I, I just don't think, one, that's the right way to happen. Two, it's not a successful business model. And you already have a league that's starting to do the right things. Like, they forget that's how the NHL started 100 years ago. Like, that's how leagues start. 
and you have to be willing to be a pioneer and maybe take less if you want to keep playing. So I kind of feel bad that there's a divide because there shouldn't be. You know, everybody should be on the same page and because everybody's fighting for the same things. They're just approaching it differently. Right. And I, and I kind of, you know, I, I just wish we, you, you take a case of beer and you put everybody in one room and you don't leave till you hammer it out. I mean, I remember Robert Kraft did that with the NFL a few years ago. Like they were so grateful for him to come and say, guys, what are we doing? Let's all get in a room and let's get it done. And I think, I think if they just eliminated the egos and they saw you have an amazing window right now, what are you doing? I would love to go in and bang some heads and say, get it together because you could be amazing and quit fighting about it. And as you were, as you were speaking, it reminds me, and I don't know the full story because I wasn't covering hockey at the time, but when ESPN had the rights and then the NHL went to demand so much money that ESPN, that deal didn't happen. So they kind of suffered for a few years until NBC came back into the mix. Right. Or at least, well, uh, actually, it was the, if, if you remember, it was actually the other way around. So oh, the lockout, okay. the, the lockout happened, lost the whole season. Right. Now, coming out of that lockout, that, that last Stanley Cup, the, uh, the 04 Stanley Cup, was still on ESPN and ABC. And coming out of the lockout, we lost an entire year. ESPN still had a right to match. And I think the rights were maybe $60 million at that time. It was not, relative to what we see now, it was not a great deal amount of money. And I believe Mark Shapiro walked away from it and said, look, I don't think the NHL is a valuable property anymore, and kind of left the NHL out to dry. And so that went to OLN, who was basically, you know, paying nothing, which morphed versus, into versus. Yeah. And then NBC said, look, we will do similar to the XFL deal right now. There are no rights fees. We'll just split our revenues 50-50. And so NBC took the leap of faith in the 2006 season and said, we'll, we'll be the, the national broadcaster of the NHL for no rights fees and basically helped get the NHL out of the doldrums from that lockout year. So. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you're like, God, everybody is so close. Just get in a room and hammer it out. And I'd love, I'd love because I'm so close with Danny. I'm close with some of the Olympic players. Like, I want everybody to succeed, but somebody somewhere is giving bad information to somebody. And you just want to go, like, get in a room. Everybody can be a winner here. If you just eliminate the egos, take a moment. Let's look at the reality. Let's look where we are. Nobody's writing a big $50 million check for you to play every year. But there's a happy medium where this league can can flourish and survive. So we're rooting for the best. And, I, and ironically, I'll be in uh, Chicago this Sunday because it's International Women's Day. And they're going to have the yeah, all-women's right. uh, broadcast of the NHL game. So I'll be there to help them out. And uh, hopefully we put on a good show. So I tell you, you know, the, the women's hockey for me is very entertaining. I had the chance when I was at Universal Sports to bring in some of their games into our facility and, and watching them. And it's exciting. It's, it's a lot of fun. Where do you see women in sports in this day and age? Because there's been a lot of progress. I see it being less of an obligation and more of an accomplishment. How do you see that? So I try to be incredibly brutally honest with people because I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of the you know, let's just do something for the sake of doing something. I think we're past that. Yeah. I had the honor of the last couple of years of working with Hannah Storm and Andrea Kramer on the, the women's broadcast of the Amazon, uh, Amazon Prime, the NFL. You know, there's two women who have done everything in this industry. Uh, Andrea Kramer in the Hall of Fame and you have Hannah Storm, who's just, I mean, their resumes are ridiculous. And those two, they earned that opportunity. You know, when Amazon said, look, we want to do a, a women's broadcast, they just didn't hand it to two people and said, gee, I hope this works out well. 
they went and got two people who have done more in this business than anybody else. And it's been phenomenal. I'd like to see more women who've paid their dues when opportunities become available. I think that is what, you know, the true equity and the equality of all of this is if when a job becomes available, you're not just throwing a woman candidate in there because she's a woman candidate. You want to be able to say, and like, wow, like she's paid her dues and she's let's put them in the pool and then see who the best is. I don't know how far away we are from that. I, I, I would imagine because at the end of the day, there are still so few women working in this industry relative to men that it's going to be still a ways away. But boy, the opportunities that are being provided to women and the pathways, I just hope there are those the women who really bust their butts and, and make it so when an opportunity becomes available, it feels like they earned it. And I think we're getting there. And remember, there's been a lot of pioneers that you and I have worked with and have, have trailblazed this to provide those opportunities. And any girl or any woman who's getting interested in this field owes their debt to them because, boy, the, some of the things they've had to see yes. and go through, it is unbelievable. But I, I think what they have done for this next generation is open the door so that when an opportunity becomes available, they're looked at as a viable candidate, not just, oh, geez, we should just do this. And so that's where I think I think we're kind of morphing into that. I still think we're a ways away from feeling like it's there's a normalcy because you're going to have the naysayers. You know, you're going to have, I guarantee, the, the hockey game on Sunday night. There's going to be plenty of Hawks viewers who are like, oh, this is ridiculous. Well, then they've lost perspective of what it is. Right. You're watching a hockey game. You know, you just have some different people covering it. Just, be, you know, be a little open-minded. You know, they're not going to call all 82. You're going to have Pat Foley and Eddie Olchek for most of your games. But it's just something different. It's, look, you know, this is tough. All the women who are going to do that show have earned their stripes to be there. Right. Will it get over the the hump of of the normalcy for sports fans and sports society? I don't know if we'll ever get there, but at least... There are a lot of women out there busting their butts to try and get to the point where when an opportunity comes available, that their credentials match what's being asked of the opportunity. And you'd mentioned it earlier, being normal, people aren't used to change. And I think right. I think that we're getting there and I can't wait for that day where none of this really even matters. It's just whoever's the best for the job can do the job and and, you know, it, but it's, again, it's a taste thing. I, you well, know. there's also give and take in society. Like when we grew up, people actually kind of tuned into games based on who was calling it, you know, the, sure. the, the Monday night football genre, you know, Howard Cosell was the star, the Detroit lions weren't over time. You know, I don't think now that Vince Scully has retired and we're still fortunate to have doc Emmerich around, like there are so few sportscasters left where you're like, oh, man, I, I, I love the combination of him calling this game. It means a lot. You know, we're about four or five of these older guys retiring away from where that's not going to matter anymore. Nobody really watches a game based on who's broadcasting it, but the broadcaster better do a decent job. And I think that's where, unfortunately, these women might be judged differently because, look, it's their first time. After the first season of the Amazon games with, with Hannah and Andrea, you know, they came so far. And I said, they, they, you know, they'd always ask for input every game. I said, you guys don't realize how far you've come since week one. But I said, don't forget, you've only called 11 of these. Like, you know, you know I work with guys who called 300, 400, 500. Like, you'll get there. And to, to compare you after game 11 to Kenny Albert at 400 and 
Dick Stockton 500 and Al Michaels at 600 isn't fair. Think about what they did in their 11th game. (laughs) Like give yourself credit, you know, and I think society needs to give these women credit. Like it's their first time. First time you play Augusta, you're not shooting 72. Like let's be honest. So I don't think we live in a society that allows the breath of newness. Everybody's so hard and so critical right away that look, Kate Scott is going to call the game Sunday. Give her 50 games. I better 50th game is a hell of a lot better than the first game. So there, there's that that we kind of have to get over. But, you know, I've, I've had the fortune of working with some amazing women over the last 15 years from, you know, Bonnie Bernstein, who was is an amazing, you know, bulldog reporter and Andrea Kramer. And there are women who work as hard. Shelter Foy, I would imagine. Yeah, just women who work as hard, if not harder. You know, the one of the things I would tell, you know, I have to speak at Penn State in a couple of weeks is tell the girls, like, look, you'll never live in a better time for opportunities for you but you're still going to have to work harder than the men. It's just, it's the reality of it. It's not fair. I'll be honest with you. It's just not fair, but it's the reality of, but with the number of opportunities that are there combined with your hard work, the, the sky's the limit. So yeah. I've been very, very fortunate to see that in some of these, these amazing women that I've worked with because they had to trailblaze. I mean, Hannah Storm, Andrew, Kramer, you know, they, they did the true trailblazing. And so I hope a lot of these women take advantage of, of their hard work. I can't tell you how much I've learned just from listening to you. I, I want to buy a sports franchise now. So are you, are you my guy? <laughs> uh, yeah, but it might cost you 50% <laughs> after my headache. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no, it's, I don't recommend it to anything. Like I said, you know, you asked me at the beginning of the show, like, what's your title? And I've had so many, what is it? And I, I said, well, like, I'd be honest. It'd probably take a half an hour for me to just explain. What I've done, and I and I would have never planned this in a million years. It might not be for everybody. I know for a fact I've been very fortunate, but it was Daryl Royal, the old Texas coach, who said, you know, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And I think in my career, I've always been prepared when that opportunity became available to maximize it. You know, it's like, you know, one of the jokes I always tell people, especially the college kids, it's like you, you always wonder, like, when you might meet your wife or you, you might meet your significant other somewhere. And what happens when the, the day you sit down and on a plane and the most beautiful girl in the world sitting to your right, but you didn't bother to take a shower and shave that day? Like there is there is you know, there are no coincidences. You have to notice an opportunity. And are you prepared when that opportunity shows itself? So I think I've been very, very fortunate over my career, right place, right time. But when I've met people and like you said, making connections that those people, I've I've either made a connection with them or built relationships with them, knowing that this business is really small and you do a good job for people and people speak highly of you, it's going to pay off in the future. Well, you kind of took my last question, but what is the best advice that you've ever been given? You mentioned Jim Leland earlier. You just mentioned the preparation and timing. Is there anything else that you've been given that's helped you through your career? There's a there's a line in uh, the movie Bull Durham at the end. Annie Savoy, the character played by um, Susan Sarandon. And it's one of my favorite movies. And she says, ours is a world for those who aren't cursed with self-awareness. Okay. And people ask me what what's a tool that you use in, in business? And I said, everybody has the, the tool. Everybody has a mirror in their house. Okay. And the best thing you can do is figure out what you think you're good at. And it, it may happen to you when you're 15. It may happen to you when you're 20, but from time to time, you have to take the, the opportunity to say, what am I good at? What's my lane? Am I a people person? 
Am I a number cruncher? Am I a marketer? Am I a good salesperson? Like, what am I good at? Because I'm not sure enough people out there realize what their strengths and weaknesses are. You know, you talk to a lot of coaches, the higher levels, they always say the one thing you should probably do is scout your own team first. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? What, what's this team good at? What's the other team going to try to beat me at? If you as a person or a professional don't look into that mirror every once in a while and say, okay, what am I good at? I mean, if I'm a salesperson and I'm trying to be an accountant, that's not a good fit. So you have to really assess yourself and what are your strengths and weaknesses and, and, and improve on them or, or figure out, you know, like, I just know I'm not good at that. So I'm going to focus on this area. So again, if you have a mirror and you have the time to take a, a sense of who you are, what you are, when you are, and where you are, that's going to help you. And it's, you know, the same can be said of sports. It's just how you how, assessing your team on a daily basis. Like that's going to lead to success. Are we in a slump or are we playing well? What do we need to work on? Like, I know we're in first place, but does our power play suck? It's those little things. And I think in some ways, being an athlete helps that because it's about making split second decisions, but also getting instant feedback. You know, there are stats for a reason. There's video for a reason. You know, I don't think there's a lot of accountants that go home and watch game tape of their day in the office. If you fail to do that in any walk of life, you're not going to go anywhere and you're probably not going to improve yourself. So to me, the answer is a mirror. Look at it from time to time. Figure out who you are, what you are, and where you want to be. I know we grew up in a world where it's like, where do you see yourself in five years? Or what are your goals? Well, nothing says you can't change those goals daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. But the mirror will help you. Couldn't have said it better myself. That's why you're the host. <laughs> <laughs> I like to ask the questions. Maybe that's my lane. Exactly. No, but I really appreciate your time. And it's great catching up with you again after almost a decade. And I'm going to be looking for you on the field. You know, now that people know what you do, hopefully they'll be able to recognize you and have an idea of what you're doing down there. Yeah. Like I said, I'm not sure I would recommend it as a career, but, you know, as I always went, when, when Doc Emmerich started to feel down from time to time, I always say to Doc, hey, your worst day in the big leagues is better than your best day anywhere else. And, and it's a refresher course. It's like, hey, look around. Remember where you are. You know, you may have had a tough day, but hey, you're standing on the field. And there's 70,000 people around you like, hey, this is bad. <laughs> well, anytime there's a, a new franchise deal happening, I'm going to think of you as well. Who knows? Maybe, maybe down the road, we will get to work with each other somehow. Oh, no, I hope so. And uh, congratulations on your foray. You are an amazing host and you might have a you know, whole new career on your hands. Oh, here, well, my thank friend. you very much. I appreciate that. All right, Ben. Well, thank you very much. You got it done. Great talking with you. All right. That was Ben Boma. After the interview, we tried to work on his title and I believe we settled on network TV sports producer and sports management consultant. But that could change depending on his next adventures. Finding out about how he's worked in this industry, especially on the consulting side, was really interesting for me, and getting to hear what makes sports announcers great is equally as entertaining. I'm sure he'll get another franchise opportunity to perhaps own a sports franchise soon. The next time you watch a game on TV, see if you can spot Ben on the sidelines. If you think my colleague Ben has had an incredible career in sports, you'll want to hear from my next podcast guest and the stories he has. He works on the engineering side of the business, the side that many people know exists with the TV trucks and technology, but they may not know all of the hard work, dedication, and technical expertise it takes to make what you see at home happen flawlessly. He's worked Super Bowls, college football national championships, will be working on the upcoming Masters Golf Tournament, and much, much more. 
episode 13 is with my new friend, Brian Nupnow, Managing Engineer for Game Creek Video. If you have any suggestions on what you'd like to know more about in sports, drop me a line at sportsinthemaking.com or contact me on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you have any questions, I'd love to include them in a future episode with your name. Wherever you listen to this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you like, share, and leave positive reviews on your social media channels. Also, be sure to subscribe to Sports in the Making so you don't miss out on more episodes and you can catch up on previous episodes there as well. I'm your host, Don Cardona. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making.